have your Bible, I encourage you to open up to the book of Luke. Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6. And we are going to be looking at verses 17 through 49. I know that's a large chunk of scripture. Um, but I first want to direct your attention to verse 46. And I want to I want to begin reading there. Luke chapter 6 beginning in verse 46. Jesus says this, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it, because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. Would you bow with me in prayer? Father, we thank you for your word. Father, we pray, we ask you to help us. Father, help us to pay attention to your word today. Help us to understand your word today. Father, help us to grow in our love for you through your word today. And Lord, help us to obey your word today. Father, would you work your word into our hearts and then, Father, we pray that out of our hearts then would flow actions that are in keeping with your word. Father, we love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I want to speak to you today from this passage in Luke about words to live by. Words to live by. Anybody ever, uh, anybody ever have that time or probably many times with maybe parents or grandparents or aunts or uncles where they, they give you a little, little piece of advice for your life? They kind of sit you down, maybe something's happened or maybe something's fixing to happen and they say, let me, let, let me give you a piece of advice. That's probably happened for all of us on numerous occasions. In fact, I could probably, we could probably go around the room and, and uh, you could probably tell me words of advice that you've been given throughout the years and we probably all benefit from those. I'm thankful for words of advice that I have been given through the years. Words like this, look both ways before you cross the street. It's words to live by, right? It's words to live by. We're working through that in our home. Um, don't just run across the street. You look both ways. What about this one? Don't touch the stove. It's words to live by, right? I'm not thinking anything real profound here. I'm just thinking day-to-day life, words to live by. Uh, don't touch the stove. You don't know if it's hot or not, so it's best just not to touch it. You know this one. You've probably heard it, probably said it many times. If it sounds too good to be true, then it what? Probably is. Probably is. Uh, I know I, I know my dad has told me that all through the years and and, um, and and there's been several instances just in the past few years where I thought, you know what he knows what he's talking about. Um, not that I ever doubted that my dad knew what he was talking about but uh, but there's a lot of truth in that. Maybe this one 
don't do something just because everyone else is doing it, right? Would you agree? We probably all maybe even learned that the hard way. Don't do something just because everyone else is doing it. I, I was given some words to live by by my four-year-old this morning. Um, she gave me some words to live by. Now, I was probably the one that first gave them to her, but I disobeyed my words to live by. I didn't follow them, and she, she got on to me. I, I was in the bathroom brushing my teeth this morning, and, uh, and, and I was going to walk down the hall because um, there was something I wanted to do in the living room or here. Uh, I think there was a song that was playing, and I wanted to hear that song. Caitlin and I had been talking about that song, and I heard it. Uh, playing and so I was like I'm going to go down there and hear it so I'm brushing my teeth and walking down the hall and I, I get in there and I'm trying to listen to this song while I'm brushing my teeth and, and, and my four year old looks and says daddy you're not supposed to walk with the toothbrush in your mouth <laughs> guilty guilty I was guilty and so uh, my four year old gave me some words to live by there was, there was one other instance this week where um, I, I became aware of some other words to live by and uh, they, they go like this. Be careful what you tell a four-year-old whose favorite thing to do is talk. Some of you have a little bit deeper laugh because you know exactly what I'm talking about. Wednesday night, I was standing right here um, during Bible study, and I get a text message on my phone. And my mom happened to be here that, um, that week and um, was... Uh, sitting in Bible study, and that text message said something like this. Letty, that's my four-year-old, Letty just spilled the beans to everyone and all God's children. So if you haven't told your mom, you better tell her now. Letty thought that prayer request time during all God's children would be the appropriate time to ask for prayer for her mommy who has a baby in her belly. Which is true. Which is true. And, uh, and we are, so, well, thank you, thank you. So uh, we were laughing about that afterwards. Uh, my mom did already know. We had told my family on Sunday, uh, but we were just going to wait about another week and a half to tell everyone else, um, just for some other family, uh, to try to get word out to some of our other family. Uh, but cat's out of the bag now. Uh, uh, I texted Caitlin immediately as, uh, when service was over, and I said, you better call your mom and tell her now because she'll find out. And uh, somebody will put it on Facebook or something. Uh, so uh, later that evening, I was texting with some folks, and uh, we were talking about it and laughing about it, and I just said, be careful what you tell a four-year-old whose favorite thing to do is talk. And, uh, and those of you who know Letty know that is her favorite thing to do, and she's good at it. Well, we think about words to live by. I can't think of any better words to live by than the words of God, and the words that he has given us in his word. In fact, Jesus, we find a couple of different gospel accounts of Jesus um, preaching a sermon. It could be some collections from some different sermons uh, that, that the writers of Scripture put together under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. There probably was this sermon that he preached, but he probably preached it on multiple occasions. Um, it's so good, he needed to say it multiple times. Uh, the, the, the people in Jesus' day and time were just like us. We don't need to hear something once. We need to hear it three, four, five, seven, maybe ten or fifteen times. And so it's likely that Jesus um, said these words many times. But he gets to the end of this sermon, if you will, and he gives this statement. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do and not do what I tell you? 
Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? It's a great question. It's a great question for us today. And, and Jesus goes on, and, and as he exposes this hypocrisy in their lives, he, he gives them an illustration. And we'll talk about that illustration in just a moment. If you want a, a statement, just to kind of summarize what we're going to be talking about today, it's this. Obedience to God is the only sure foundation for your life and is impossible apart from a, a saving relationship with God through Jesus. Obedience to God is the only sure foundation for your life and is, is impossible apart from a saving relationship with God through Jesus Christ. He exposes their hypocrisy in verse 46. Um, in, in fact, one writer said this throughout, talking about this entire passage here in Luke chapter 6, beginning in verse 20, really. Um, he said this, throughout we are reminded of what it means to be a disciple. It is not a matter of fine words only, but of a whole way of life. Jesus doesn't call us just to give him lip service, but he calls us to give him our very lives. And then we go to verse 47 and we find this sentence. Everyone who comes to me and hear my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He stresses the importance of obedience to his words by this illustration. He talks about a man who builds a house and he digs it deep and lays the foundation on a rock. The floods rise, the streams rise, and the house still stands. But then there's another man who builds his house, and he digs it into the sand, and he builds his house on the sand. And from the outside, it looks like everything is great. And uh, it probably was a little bit easier for him to build that house. He only had to dig in the sand and not in the rock. It probably didn't take him near the time. However, when the streams rose, when the, when the floods came, his house did not stand. And Jesus says, I am telling you, this is what it's like to either hear my words and do them or to hear my words and not do them. He stresses the importance of obedience to his words. This is actually the conclusion of a longer teaching of Jesus that you'll see in your Bible that begins really back in verse 20. If you go to verse 17, we see that Jesus has come down with his disciples. He stands on a level place. There's a great crowd of disciples around him, a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem, the coast, seacoast of, of Tyre and Sidon. Uh, this area from which these people are drawn is, is about a, a hundred mile uh, uh, area. Uh, in, in if you went from Tyre or Sidon all the way down to Jerusalem, a little bit over a hundred miles, it kind of be like I tried to try to do a little little map work, and I'm not real good at that. But I, I was trying to get the visual of how many people like Jesus was attracting. It kind of be like everyone gathered from like Greenville to Augusta. Like that, that's the, I don't mean every single person, but that's the, the, the range of people that Jesus has drawn out. That doesn't seem like very far to us, but in a day and time where you, you walked everywhere or took a donkey, Jesus' audience is kind of widespread. And so there's a lot of people that have gathered here to hear him speak. And, and when he comes, he actually heals their diseases. We see there in verse 18, those who were troubled with un, unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowds sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. But Jesus wasn't there just to perform miracles and heal their bodies. He also wanted to teach them. He wanted to give them words to live by. And so as we walk through this passage today, I want to give you five statements. Five statements. The first is this. We want to live with the right perspective. We want to live with the right perspective. And when we live with the right perspective, that means that we will forsake temporary comforts for eternal rewards. We will forsake temporary comforts 
for eternal rewards, living with the right perspective. We're going to see this in verses 20 through 26. Now, we could have a whole message on each of these sections of Scripture, but today we just want to look at what was the backdrop for Jesus saying, obey my words, don't call me Lord, Lord, and then not do what I say. Well, here we have living with the right perspective. Look in verse 20. He lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. I can only imagine that this crowd that was gathered there with Jesus thought, whoa, this, this thing just took a turn in a direction that I wasn't expecting. Here I am getting my, my body healed from sicknesses, from unclean spirits. And then Jesus, as one writer says, drops a series of bombshells on his audience. Notice what he says. He turns the world's values upside down. Blessed are you who are poor. What? Blessed are you who are hungry. Wait a second, Jesus. Blessed are you who weep. Jesus, did you get enough sleep last night? I'm not, I'm not, sure, I'm not sure everything's clicking there in, in your mind. This just doesn't make much sense. So certainly he's going to say, oh, I'm just kidding, I'm just kidding. But instead, he goes on and says, blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and when they revile you and when they spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. And then he follows that up with rejoice. Rejoice in this lifestyle. This is the life of joy that I have come to bring you. Poor and hungry, weeping, persecuted. I think if we could summarize those first, this first little section of of this right perspective part of Jesus' sermon, we could say this, that following Jesus is hard. But we're also reminded that life is short. Following Jesus is hard, but life is short. Blessed are you who are poor and hungry and weep now and are excluded and hated and reviled. But then he reminds us that there is a reward that is great in heaven. He, he takes us to eternity. He takes us to eternity. He's saying, listen, Forsake the temporary comforts of this this life for an eternal reward. Following me, Jesus says, is hard, but life is short. There is eternity to come. Poor and hungry, acknowledging dependence upon God versus self-reliance. Man, if that doesn't speak into our society today, society that says, you pull yourself by, up by your own bootstraps and, and you work hard and, and you can do it and, and you set your mind to it and uh, you dream big and you reach for the stars and you can be who you want to be. I'm not saying those things are necessarily bad or evil things. The problem with that mentality is it leads us to think that I must rely upon myself. But to live the life that God calls me to live, I cannot rely upon myself. I must depend upon God, His grace and His power in my life. And you must do the same thing. Someone who's poor and hungry acknowledges their dependence upon God, prays for their daily bread, realizes they need God. What about this weeping? We're to go around and, and be sorrowful all the time. No, what, he's, what he means there is that we're acknowledging the brokenness of our world and, and more personally, the brokenness of our own heart. 
that we realize that this life is not full of just fun and games. We realize that there really is an evil in our world. There really is brokenness. There really is sin. And it's not just out there, but it's also in our hearts. And that brokenness that we live in in this world causes us to mourn. It causes us to, to weep and be saddened by the state of our world, fallen because of sin. But, of course, realizing, as he mentions, mentions heaven, that that weeping doesn't last forever. That though there is sorrow now, joy comes in the morning. In Revelation chapter 7 and Revelation chapter 21, we learn about heaven two times in the book of Revelation that he wipes every tear from their eyes. You see, this weeping is temporary, but there's eternity that's coming. And then persecuted, living for the cause of Christ, not hated because you're a mean person, not not hated because you act like a jerk, but notice what he says, hated because you love me, hated for my name's sake. And Jesus was very clear that if they hated the master, they will hate the master's followers. And the world clearly hated Jesus. They hung him on a cross. And he says, don't be surprised, brothers, when the world hates you. Not because you're mean, but because you're living your life for the glory of me, the glory of Jesus. Don't be surprised when the world hates you. We see the disciples living this out. Acts chapter four, uh, we, we uh, excuse me, Acts chapter five, we find this account where the, the apostles are arrested and, and they're thrown into prison and, and later they're set free. But the, at the end of the day, the end of Acts chapter five, we find these words. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. We read that chapter, we know that the name is referring to the name of Jesus. Following Jesus is hard, but life is short. Comfort does not equal blessedness. Comfort does not equal blessedness. Some of the most miserable people, miserable people in our world often are, from the world's perspective, the most comfortable. They have, they have all this stuff. Their life is full of earthly comforts, but they are miserable. But if we look then at where he goes next in verses 24 through 26, we see not only that following Jesus is hard, but life is short. But he kind of flips the tables and we see that not following Jesus is easy, but eternity is long. Following Jesus is hard. Not following Jesus is easy. But eternity is long. Notice where he goes. He says, but woe to you who are rich. He gives the opposite of all of these things. Woe to you who are rich. For you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. One writer said that Jesus is making a mockery of the world's values. Making a mockery of the world's values. Saying, this is what the world says. It's actually completely wrong. In fact, woe to you who are rich. For you have received your consolation. Consolation there, you could translate that. You have been paid in full. You have received all you'll get. And again, he's not talking about an evil of simply being rich. He's comparing that to someone who is living in dependence upon God. This rich person says, I don't need God. I don't need him. I have everything that I need. And he says, woe is you, for you have been paid in full. Following Jesus is hard, or excuse me, not following Jesus is easy, but eternity is long. 
If I have everything I'll ever have right now, that means I have all eternity to live in want. Notice what he says in the next line. Woe to you who are full now. In other words, the person who sits back and says, hmm, look at all this. Look at all this. I'm satisfied. I'm satisfied. I don't need anything. I don't want anything. He says, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now. Remember uh, in verse 21, he said, blessed are you who weep. Now he says, woe to you who laugh. Same thing. You say, well, Jesus is saying it's wrong to laugh. No, absolutely not. In fact, I think we're going to get an illustration. We'll see an illustration in just a few minutes. It's kind of a funny illustration. I think Jesus may have even meant it to be funny. Kind of evokes some humor there in the, in the crowd that day. Laughing is not evil. Laughing is not bad. But what is evil is to laugh at the brokenness in our world. To go through life with just this carefree, happy-go-lucky, ignore all the evil in our world and just blow it off. Instead of stopping to realize the sin that's in our world, the sin that is in my heart. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. For how long? For all of eternity. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. It doesn't mean it's bad if, if people speak well of you. But if, if everyone speaks well of you and you're following Jesus... That means you're probably not really following Jesus because he's already told us that if we follow him, there will be some who hate us. Not everyone will speak well of us. We can live our lives simply to please people or we can obey Jesus. Some will hate us, but go back to verse 23. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven for so their fathers did to the prophets. You see, just as comfort does not equal blessedness, so also does the praise of man not equal the praise of God. You see, everybody in the world can be singing your praises, but God be displeased with you. Be careful in seeking the praise of men. Because it could just be that in so doing, you are bringing dishonor to the Lord. These are words to live by. And if we live with these heavenly values, which makes a mockery of the world's values, then here's what we can expect. We can expect to have enemies. If we take what the world says and live the opposite way, then we can expect that we would have enemies. Well, what do we do? Well, that's where we turn next in verses 27 through 36. So not only do we live with the right perspective, we also live with the right love. We live with the right love. In other words, let true love characterize your life. The emphasis there on the word true. Let true love characterize your life. How do we know what true love is? Not by watching Disney movies. Not saying you shouldn't. I'm just saying that's not where we find what true love is. Where do we find a definition of true love? We find that in God's Word. In fact, we look to God as the definition of what true love is. To live with the right love, to let true love characterize our lives. Look at this passage. I'm going to read it. We can't spend a lot of time here, but just notice, notice how this completely, again, turns the world's values upside down. He says, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you, to the one who strikes you on the cheek, Offer the other also, and from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you, and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. 
And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. Verse 32, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your father is merciful. I can make just a few quick statements about this passage. Um, and, And again, we could spend a lot more time. Even in this particular passage, there's so much that could be said. There's ways to take these verses out of context and say they mean something that that they don't really mean. But if you can just look at it from a little bit higher level uh, today, instead of us digging into all the details, let's just just notice the, the, the way that Jesus is calling his people to live and how that's different than the world. Let's look and see what true love is. I want some words to live by. I want to live characterized by true love. True love loves as much as possible, not as little as possible. True love loves as much as possible, not as little as possible. That's how we want to love. We want to do as little as possible and pat ourselves on the back. But notice, notice, what, notice what Jesus says. He says, talking about the one who, who, uh, who takes away your cloak. That cloak would have been the outer garment that they wore, but then underneath they would have had a tunic, uh, uh, another garment that they would have worn worn under that. You kind of think about it like a shirt and a jacket. And so he says to the one who takes your jacket from you, don't say, wow, look at me. I didn't I didn't ask for it back. I just let him I let him take take my jacket. We pat ourselves on the back and say, wow, I, I was really generous. Don't don't love as little as possible. He says love as much as possible. If someone takes your jacket, give them your shirt too. Go above and beyond in your love for others. This is true love. Love as much as possible, not as little. How much suffering can I endure for someone else? How much can I give away? How much can I love? Not how little. True love also loves others when it's hard, not just when it's easy. True love loves others when it's hard. Not just when it's easy. Notice verse 32. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? That's an easy kind of love. It's easy to love someone who loves me. It's easy to be generous with someone who is generous in return to me. It's easy to do those things. And he says, Jesus says, listen, the sinners do that. The ones who aren't even trying to be obedient to God. The ones who don't care about me, who don't care about God's word. They don't care about eternity. They, they live that way. They're nice to their friends. And you're patting yourself on the back because you're nice to the people that love you. He says, no, that's not true love. True love loves others when it's hard, not just when it's easy. You love your enemies and do good. And you lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great. True love also loves by choice. And not by feeling. True love loves by choice. And not by feeling. Let me ask you a question. When have you ever felt like loving an enemy? 
I mean, the, I mean, feelings. When have you ever said, oh, man, I can't wait to love this person today. I just, man, it's just, I just, it's just, it's just bubbling up inside of me, my love for this person. I mean, I can't stop thinking happy thoughts about this person. This person is my enemy. And I mean, it just puts a smile on my face when I think about them. That doesn't normally, if that happens to you, wow, that's, that's impressive. And that happened to me. The natural thing for me is not to love my enemies. But true love loves by choice and not by feeling. If you're waiting to feel like loving your enemy before you love your enemy, you will never love your enemy. One writer said it this way, Love which is not drawn out by merit in the beloved, but which proceeds from the fact that the lover chooses to be a loving person. That is true love. Naturally, that's an incredibly accurate description of our God. When have we ever merited God's love? To merit something means to earn it, means to deserve it. Never. The only thing we have merited by our actions is God's wrath. That's what we deserve. And yet, God has sent His Son to rescue us from our sin. Is that based on a feeling of love? I'm so happy that these people love me, and so in response, I'm going to love them? No. While we were still His enemies, Christ died for us. Romans chapter 5, verse 8. And that's exactly how He ends this passage. He says, be merciful even as your Father is merciful. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. How is our Father, how is God merciful to us? He was merciful when we were not worthy of His mercy. He loved us when we were not lovable. He loved us because He chose to love us. Not because we had done something nice for Him and it evoked this feeling of love towards us. True love loves by choice and not by feeling. True love loves like God and not like the world. In fact, you find this passage in Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 5, verse um, 1 and 2. Incredible passage of Scripture as we think about uh, the love that God has for us and then the love that we're to have for others. Paul writes this. Uh, we'll end with uh, the end of verse, uh, chapter 4. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Chapter 5 of Ephesians. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Jesus loved us as much as possible, not as little as possible. Jesus loved us when it was hard, not just when it was easy. He made a choice to love us, not just based on a feeling to love us, And therefore, he is the definition of what true love is. And that is how we are to love others. We live with the right love. Let true love characterize your life. Those are words to live by. Number three, we live with the right self-awareness. We live with the right self-awareness, which means understand, excuse me, which means live with a greater awareness of your own faults than the faults of others. Live with a right self-awareness. Now, here's what the world often thinks it means when it talks about self-awareness. It means to look in the mirror and be aware of how good you are. To look in the mirror and say, this is where I'm strong at. These are my strengths. 
This is what I this is what I'm this is what I'm good at doing. And I give myself kind of a self-motivational speech, a pep talk, pump me up for the day. You know, I mean, it's bad always to think about what your strengths are. Sometimes that's a good thing to do. But often when scripture speaks of understanding ourselves, it means understanding that we're not as good as we think we are. We're not as good as we often think we are. We often give ourselves too much credit. And because of that, we're quick to point out the faults in others and slow to point out the faults in ourselves when it should be the opposite. We ought to live with a greater awareness of our own faults than with the faults of others. Verse 37 says this, Judge not and you will not be judged. Condemn not and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. In other words, resist the urge to judge others quickly. Now, again, another passage we could spend a, a lot of time on. If I can just give one, one caveat to this, not caveat, it's just a, putting it in the context of the whole Bible. Scripture actually does tell us to judge. All right, we're to judge one another in the church in the sense that we're to hold one another accountable. Okay? This isn't a blanket statement that we never cast any judgment on anyone, anywhere. Anytime we hear someone teach or preach from the Bible and we say, that's not what the Bible says. We've just made a judgment. Do you think God wants us to do that? Do you think he wants us to expose false teachers? Absolutely. Okay? So don't think we're never to judge. We live in a world that says, well, you can't judge me. I can't judge you. Well, all this kind of stuff. That's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about someone who is quick to judge others without first examining himself or herself. Because that's exactly where he goes in verse 39. He also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? The disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone when he is fully trained will be like his teacher. And here's that kind of comical illustration parable that I mentioned earlier. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? So here's the here's the visual that Jesus gives. We're thinking about my fault versus someone else's fault. He says, you're walking around trying to get the piece of sawdust out of somebody else's eye. And at the same time, you've got a log sticking out of your eye. I mean, he's a log like figure a log sticking out of somebody's eye. Okay, now I think Jesus meant a few laughs out of that. That's a kind of silly picture, right? I mean, a log. He doesn't say he doesn't say a bigger piece of sawdust. He doesn't say a stick. He says a log sticking out of your eye. But how often is that how we live? We have these massive faults in our own lives, and all we can think about is the specks of dust in other people's lives. Now he doesn't say it's wrong to help somebody get the speck of dust out of their eye. He just says, before you do that, go look in the mirror and get that log out of your eye. Then you'll be able to help that person get that speck out of his or her eye. Help that person get rid of that fault. Notice he says, how can you say to your brother, brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye. You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. We resist the urge to judge others quickly. We also look in the mirror before pointing out someone else's fault. To live with the right self-awareness. To wake up in the morning and realize we're not as good as we probably think we are. We're not as clean as we probably think we are. We're not as perfect as we probably think we are. 
This isn't a miserable way to live, walk around with our head down all the time. Man, I'm just a terrible person. I'm just a terrible person. No. He says, he says you want to see the log in your own eyes so you can get it out. So you don't have to live that way anymore. The first step of turning from sin is having sin exposed in our lives. We don't want to live in sin, but it's got to be exposed and we've got to be aware of it. So we should look at ourselves and our own faults before we look at those of others. Number four, words to live by. Live with the right heart. Now, this, this sermon, this sermon is coming. I don't mean just my sermon, but hopefully I think it is coming to, to a point. Okay, But Jesus' sermon is coming to a point. He's going somewhere with this. He's giving them all these ways to live. And then starts to get to, if I could say, uh, the heart of the matter. Verse 43. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. We want to live with the right heart, which means understand that your thoughts, words, and actions expose your heart. Your thoughts and words and actions are actually exposing what is on the inside. No good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person, out of the good treasure of his heart, produces good. And the evil person, out of the evil treasure, produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. So who is the person that lives like, blessed are you who are poor, blessed are you who are hungry, blessed are you who eat now, blessed are you when people hate you and whom they exclude and revile you and spurn you. Who is that person? It's a person that has a good heart. Who is the person who, who loves their enemies, who gives and, and, and loves as much as possible, expecting nothing in turn? It's a person who has a good heart. Who, who is the person who is not quick to judge others, but is very quick to be aware of his or her own faults? What's the person who has a good heart? All those things are good works, but our good works flow from our hearts. Which means this. Outward sin is not just outward sin. Outward sin is not just outward sin. You say, oh, wow, really profound, Zach. Why'd you say that one twice? Like that was important or something. Because it is important. And so, so many people, and I include myself in this, fail to realize that there is a deeper issue going on. When I see, I finally see the log that's sticking out of my eye, what's tempting is just to try to yank the log out and then keep on going. But what that log has now exposed is a problem in my heart. For out of the heart, the mouth speaks so that means this, if outward sin is not just outward sin, that means that outward sin is not just a symptom of how I was born, or who my parents are, or what my environment is or was growing up. All these things that we like to blame for the sin that's in our lives. Well, I have this outward problem. Well, it must have been my parents' fault. Well, it must be my DNA. Well, it must be the, the, the environment that I was lived in and it was things I was exposed to. Jesus says, out of your heart comes good or evil. I'm not saying those things don't play a role, but at the end of the day, we are responsible for our own actions. And what matters is whether or not our heart is good or our heart is evil. So outward sin is not just an outward sin. Then that means outward sin doesn't just need an outward solution. It doesn't. 
if we're thinking an outward solution will fix our outward problem of sin, we are mistaken because our outward problem of sin is really just a symptom of the inward problem of our hearts. And so when we try to fix ourselves, we say, well, I know I'm living this way and I shouldn't live this way, so I'm just going to stop. I'm just going to make up my mind. I'm just going to be disciplined. I'm going to put these outward things in my life that are going to keep me from doing that. I'm going to put these outward boundaries in my life that are going to keep me from doing that. And that's, that's the only, only solution or fix to the sin that we have. Then it's like putting a Band-Aid on somebody's chest when they have a heart attack. And saying, I fixed the problem. Put that Band-Aid on there. That's what my girls think. You put a Band-Aid on it, man, it just makes everything feel better, right? Just slap a Band-Aid on there and you're good to go. You slap a Band-Aid on somebody that's having a heart attack, you haven't helped them at all. Why? Because it's a deeper issue. There's something deeper that's going on. So there must be a deeper solution. Lastly, number five. And listen, you have to get this point. Or everything that I've said could actually lead you away from hope, away from building your life on a solid foundation. Live with the right Savior. Live with the right Savior. In other words, submit to Jesus as Lord by trusting in Jesus as Savior. Submit to Jesus as Lord by trusting in Jesus as Savior. Verse 46, he gets, now he gets back to the, down to this end and this conclusion of his sermon. And he says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I took? So he said, here's how I want you to live. A, B, C, D, E, F. This is how you're supposed to live. Now, why do you call me Lord and not do what I say? He doesn't get on to them for calling him Lord. Calling him Lord. He is Lord. He's the Lord of heaven and earth. We are to submit our lives to His Lordship. The problem is, we can call Him Lord, but we can't be obedient to what He's called us to do. Not on our own. If we miss what He just said about the fruit tree, and the problem is deep in our heart, and I'll say, alright, well, I'll clean up my act. I want, I, don't, I want my house to be built on the rock. I don't want my life to be washed away in the coming judgment. And so, I'm going to be a good person. I'm going, to, I'm going to pull myself up by my bootstraps. I'm going to say, all right, here's the bad things in my life. I'm going to stop doing those, and here's the things I'm supposed to do, and I'm going to start doing those. The problem is we'll find ourselves in the same boat that the people found themselves in that were listening to Jesus that day. And we'll stand before him one day, maybe having been a church member, maybe having come to church, maybe having read our Bible, maybe even having tried to serve the Lord, and we'll stand before him, and he'll say, why did you say, Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? He was like, well, Jesus, I tried. I tried. But what is his standard? The standard is perfection. And not one of us is perfect. We're not. And so Jesus says, here is how someone who gets to enter my kingdom, here is how someone whose life is built on a sure foundation, which means they will live forever with me in heaven. Here's how they live. And if we're not careful, we will look at that list and go, whew, that's pretty hard, but I think I can do it. Instead of looking at that list that we just walked through and going, no way. I know me, 
And I know as hard as I try, I will fail at that. And I think then Jesus will look at us and say, good, that's exactly what I wanted you to think. Because I don't want you to leave this sermon, Jesus would say, and go out and just try to be a good person. I want you to fall out on my feet and say, Jesus, I can't do this. Help me. And Jesus would say, just wait. Just wait. Because in just a little while, I'm going to set my face to Jerusalem. And I'm going I'm to walk down Calvary's road. I'm going to take your inability to live up to my standard and the wrath that is due you because of that from my Father. And I'm going to take that upon myself as I hang on Calvary's cross. I'm going to take your sin. I'm going to take your imperfection. I'm going to take your wrong perspective and your wrong love and your quickness to judge others instead of yourself. And I'm going to take that evil heart that it all comes from and I'm going to die for you. And in place of that evil heart, I'm going to give you a heart of flesh. I'm going to give you a heart that has been transformed by my grace and by my mercy. I'm going to put my Holy Spirit in you. And then as you trust in me as your Savior, you then will be able to obey me as your Lord. That is the good news of the gospel. Jesus didn't just say, do these things. He also said, repent. Jesus also said, believe in me. Jesus also said, I have come to seek and to save the lost. And he said, I have come to give my life as a ransom for many. Those are words to live by. Obedience to God is the only sure foundation for your life. We are to seek to live holy lives. But it's impossible apart from a saving relationship with God through Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's not by works. Lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship. Created for good works. Which he prepared beforehand. That we should walk in him. Here's Christianity. Saved by grace. Through faith. Unto good works. Don't get that order wrong. Have you trusted in Jesus Christ today? And if you have, are you seeking to live for Him and for His glory? Let's pray. Father, truly these are words to live by. They're words that our world finds difficult. They're words that our world often makes fun of. But Father, You make a mockery of the values of this world. Father, these are difficult things to live according to. It's hard to love our enemies. It's hard to, 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 to give up earthly comforts uh, for an eternal reward. Father, it's hard to, to look in the mirror day after day and, and, and see our own faults. It's so much easier just to look at the faults in others. Father, maybe one or, one or all of those areas, someone here is struggling with those things. But Father, our prayer today is not that we would just try to be better, but that we would see that apart from Jesus, our hearts are wicked. And if our hearts are wicked, the only thing we'll ever produce is wickedness in your sight. But thank you, God, that you sent your Son to pay the price for our sins, to rise up from the dead so that we could have new hearts, not dead hearts, but new hearts, so that then we could be holy for you are holy. Father, help us to live in obedience to Jesus, but not because we can do it on our own, through our faith in him as our Savior. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to